Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Russia's war crimes in Ukraine are being revealed as its military is pushed back. In the Kiev suburbs, evidence of summary executions, torture, and rape are being revealed. All countries are guilty of war crimes, but Russia deserves special mention for its actions in the last hundred years. At the end of World War II and the occupation of Germany immediately thereafter, at least two million German women were raped by Russian soldiers, along with other atrocities on the most brutal front of the war. In the Afghan War, Russia was infamous for using landmines that looked like toys so that kids would pick them up. And in Chechnya, more rape, bombardment of civilians, and executions. Joining us to talk about this cheery topic today is Professor Amir Viner of Stanford. He studies the Soviet Union and Russia and their way of war. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The scenes from Bucha are so raw. Were you surprised by what you saw at all? Not at all. Regrettably, not at all, because these things happen not necessarily because there is any genetic Russian code for uh, atrocities, but very often this is what happens under two conditions. One, when your plan A is the only plan and it fails and you're beaten up or at least have to withdraw and the frustration that uh, builds up among troops that are also un underprepared, certainly under-equipped, and they also seems to be also hungry in some cases, and the rage that they are taking on the second condition of entanglement with uh, civilians. It's a recipe for disaster for any army to fight among civilians. It is much uh, worse when it happens when an army is not getting its goal, does not achieve its immediate delusional uh, goal of uh, a blitzkrieg overwhelming the opponents. And that's what uh, happened. What is more disturbing in this case, even more than, than the usual, is that these atrocities apparently started very early, very early. And that is something that sends chills uh, in our spines, that uh, why it started so early, this hatred towards a population that uh, did not uh, 
open its arms uh, to, uh, to you. That's something that uh, is very disturbing. Was it premeditated or was it circumstantial? We still don't know, but the magnitude and the timing of it so early in the invasion is very troubling. Well, they've been, I would argue they've been primed for it by eight years of conflict in East Ukraine, right? Like the, this, yes, we're in the early stages of a new, of a like a, of an escalation of an extant conflict. But I imagine like what has been going on in Russian media for the past eight years probably sets this, sets the stage for this kind of behavior, right? Certainly, there, the issue of propaganda is uh, one set that uh, we have to uh, pay attention to. The fact that troops uh, are being subjected to indoctrination, just like the rest of uh, the, uh, the Russian population, that Ukrainians are simply renegade uh, group they are, uh, who refuse to accept their destiny of being part of Russia, the fact that they do not deserve, they do not merit the recognition of sovereign nation and sovereign state that already set a certain stage. Does it get to the minds of the 18, 19, 20-year-old kids in uniforms? It's difficult uh, to say for us uh, whether it was the propaganda or the circumstances, but certainly the propaganda is uh, in the Russian Federation became more and more violent and aggressive, especially uh, as we got closer and closer to the invasion. That is one thing. Second, in eastern Ukraine, which uh, is some uh, called it frozen war, the conditions there deteriorated on the ground on both sides. That it's not just the Russian military, uh, the regular army, but it's basically militias uh, on both sides of the uh, separatists supported by the Russian forces and the Ukrainian uh, militias, uh, the, reg- uh, the battalions that were fighting there. And atrocities apparently were rolling uh, on and on, quite ignored because it was basically quite, except for certain eruptions when the Ukrainians tried to uh, clear the region in 2015 and 2016 and were beaten uh, back by, uh, not by the uh, separatists, but basically by the Russian military. And since then, it's been uh, brewing uh, on a low burner, but uh, nevertheless, Civilians caught in the, in the midst of these uh, fightings. There were reports on a deportation of people evacuated forcibly. There were uh, reports on sexual violence. And when you look at the gallery of characters who were, the, the, and I say who were because many of them died, of the, the commanders of the um, paramilitary organizations on the Russian side, such a these were no uh, scout boys. These were rough and tough, uh, semi-gangster uh, characters. When you're talking about current events, and actually, I guess, along the eastern border as well, one of the things that has led to war crimes and uh, genocide in the past is this concept of othering, you know, to basically think of another human being as not quite a human being. The reason why I, this seems a little different to me is Vladimir Putin arguing so violently, we're all one people. And I'm just wondering how different this situation is. And, and you said you were surprised by how fast the you know had started. 
What do you think of that together? I have to admit that it baffles me, and I would dare say uh, most of my uh, colleagues, uh, specialists in uh, Russia, Ukraine, that we were always trained to believe, and uh, people, uh, all of us who uh, went uh, to Russia so many times and to Ukraine, that if there is one thing that will prevent the former Soviet Union from exploding, especially during the collapse and after, is that Russian and Ukrainians will not fight each other. The relations are so intertwined, the, the family relations, the, the history, that not necessarily a loving history, as the Russians would like to put it nowadays in their propaganda, but that they basically were the two close to each other to shed each other's blood. Now, there were incidents in history when they did shed a lot of blood, especially in Western Ukraine after the war, when the um, Ukrainian national, uh, nationalist movement uh, sought uh, independence. And this was one of the bloodiest civil wars, uh, post-war civil wars in Europe. But relations, all in all, were familial. And this is something that indeed uh, uh, surprised us, the ferocity of hatred, especially coming from the Russian side. With Putin, it, uh, he, of course, this is not only Putin himself. It, it is large part of the Russian elite. And when I say elite, not only the regime, but also large part of the liberal uh, intelligentsia. There is a problem of accepting Ukraine as independent and Ukrainian nation as separate from the Russian nation. Even during the collapse, when the Ukraine was beginning to bail out, and it was a very slow process, very opportunistic, the people who let Ukraine go, Yeltsin, Gorbachev, the advisor around Gorbachev and Yeltsin uh, after him, had difficulties to accept it. After all, as, as they said, this is us. This is my family is in from Ukraine. Uh, how can we teach our own history without Kiev? They had problems to, of accepting it, and that brings to, to the other side that the anger at Ukraine for bailing out, not accepting it, and the concept that we hear more and more nowadays of the Russian world, Ruski Mir, um, in, in Russian, that Putin became the chief proselytizer, the priest of it, but it's not, of course, his idea alone of the unity, the mythical unity of all Russian-speaking communities, that it is a holy mission to reunite them, to protect all Russian-speaking enclaves. When he gave his famous speech in 2005, and the world went uh, berserk over his uh, the line that the greatest geopolitical threat, uh, catastrophe of the uh, 20th, 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. People forgot to simply to listen to the follow, following sentence where he said the tragedy is of 25 million Russians stepped uh, beyond the borders of their motherland. And that was already something that he hinted, he actually did it even before, that it is their mission to protect all Russian-speaking communities. And this brings us into this mix of uh, Ukraine and otherness, that the way he started speaking about Ukrainians 
always dismissive, very, very antagonistic. Now, we can say that it is based on his opportunism because twice he was rebuffed in Ukraine in 2004 in the Orange Revolution and in 2014 and when it was the so-called Revolution of Dignity. But the Ukrainian basically sent his uh, puppet uh, person, Yanukovych, sent him packing. And that was a personal humiliation, but also strengthened his own convictions that it is the making of the West and their agents, so to speak, of inciting Ukrainian to separate and in an antagonistic manner from uh, Russia. So one thing that uh, we have to remind ourselves, Putin has been telling us the story of the about Ukraine, his goals for Ukraine, and his contempt for Ukrainians who seek independence and sovereignty. He's been telling it to us for 20 years. It is not, uh, it's nothing new. Tyrants, by the way, always tell us what they want and uh, what they are seeking to do. They always lie about how they are going to do it. But uh, certainly they don't hide their uh, dreams and uh, delusions. So we, we talked a little bit before we went on air about Chechnya and Grozny and a comment that you had made that I think you, you, you said kind of set set thoughts ablaze, that you were worried that we were going to see another Grozny. Yeah. For, for audience members that may not be aware, can you tell us what happened there and how it is similar to what we're seeing now? There are some profound similarities. Also, we have also to pay attention to the differences uh, between uh, uh, Chechnya and Ukraine. The similarities is regions that uh, were under uh, Russian-Soviet uh, do, uh, domination for a long, long time and sought independence. Chechnya uh, was an autonomous region in the Soviet uh, Union. Uh, during and after the uh, Soviet uh, collapse in 91, sought independence and achieved it de facto. And I say de facto because it was never recognized by Russia. Chechens are and were Russian citizens. So the independence uh, movement uh, gained um, sovereignty, de facto sovereignty, by beating the Russian uh, uh, military in the first Chechen war in 1994 to 1996. It was a very humiliating uh, story for the Yeltsin uh, government and for Russia in general, that a ragtag army of uh, rebels basically blocked, halted, and uh, brought down um, the invading uh, Russian uh, forces. And what happened was, and here we come to the first uh, similarity, the humiliation. The humiliating factor that uh, brings Chechnya and Ukraine, just as uh, Putin was rebuffed in Ukraine in 2004 and 2014, so were the um, uh, Russian uh, government, his predecessor, uh, Yeltsin, in 94-96. Second uh, similarity is the attempt to solve the, the issue by basically uh, beating uh, militarily the, the rebels and installing a puppet regime. Someone who would do uh, Moscow's bidding and... It worked in the second uh, Chechen war in 1999-2000, actually in 1999-2009 when it was completely ceased, and they succeeded. 
They succeeded uh, by uh, finding the, the clan of uh, Kadyrov, uh, he's the, the father of uh, Kadyrov, the, uh, the pre- current uh, president, and Ramzan Kadyrov, and who d- basically does the bidding of uh, Moscow there in a very brutal uh, manner, but this is the second goal that's very similar to what they wanted to do in Ukraine, is invading, kicking out the uh, Zelensky government and installing someone unclear whom they they had delusions uh, that they would find in Ukraine who will accept them. So here are the certain similarities. Beyond that, there is also the history, beyond the, the, the domination and that they were being part of the Russian Empire or the, Russian, or the, or the Soviet Union, very bloody history. In Chechnya, uh, in uh, the late uh, Second World War, Chechens were uh, de- deported in total uh, by the Soviet regime, accused of a collaboration with uh, the Nazis, with the Germans at the time. In Ukraine, more or less at the same time, mass deportations that lasted uh, all the way to the end of the 1940s and of hundreds of thousands of uh, Ukrainian, mainly from Western Ukraine. And what it meant, that's the third similarity, a legacy of bitterness, brewing bitterness both in Chechnya and Ukraine against against, uh, Soviet uh, power, Russian uh, power in this case. Of course, there are differences that we must pay attention. Chechnya is a tiny uh, region. It's, I think it's even smaller than uh, New Jersey. At the time of the Chechen wars in the 90s, it was more or less one million people. And Ukraine, of course, is so much a larger country, the size of France. Everyone now mentions Texas, the size of Texas, with uh, 40 to 42 million uh, people. And, of course, the international community that lines up uh, behind and surrounding uh, Ukraine, something that at the time very few cared for Chechnya in the international arena. There were human rights, of course, uh, when uh, we watched what was done to Grozny and to Chechnya in general. There was quite a horrified uh, reaction uh, of the scenes of Grozny that looked like uh, uh, Dresden in Germany after the bombing. And But beyond that, there was no support because the Chechens were considered to be part of Russia, that all Russian uh, pol- uh, the, uh, political landscape basically was uh, unanimous, that uh, this would not, should not be allowed to break away from uh, the Russian fe- Federation. And the flirt- flirtation that turned into a much more uh, evident and uh, obvious of the independence movement with Islamic radicals and the radicalization that we can say certainly that it was a product of the Russian invasion, the radicalization of the rebels that turned into radical Islam and, of course, did not uh, win many supporters in the West. One thing you said about Ukraine was that part of the trouble might be how badly the Russian army has been faring. and. Wasn't that the same in, in, in Chechnya as well? I mean, that Russia never thought that beaten up so badly? Yeah. In Chechnya, it was just as obvious. Of course, nowadays we forget about Chechnya. It is withering away, except what we hear about the Chechen support for the Russian army sending volunteers, etc. But uh, yes, that was uh, the, the, first of all, 
unlike uh, today, uh, there was dissent in the Russian military about invading uh, Chechnya after it uh, declared independence. Uh, Russian generals resigned. They, they said, we are not going to fight and kill Russian citizens. The Chechens they were uh, Russian citizens. And indeed, it did not go uh, down well. The Russian military was not prepared for a counterinsurgency. It was certainly not prepared for urban warfare. And the indiscriminate bombing started almost Im- immediately. Grozny was taken three times. They took Grozny and they were repelled. They took it again and were repelled. They took it again and were repelled. And that's a, a bad omen for the, po- uh, the population there. The mass killings of tens of thousands of uh, Chechen citizens in indiscriminate bo- aerial bombing and artillery at the time. And the Russian army really looked bad. It looked bad uh, at the time. The second time in, in the... Um, 1999, uh, which the, the war that built Putin's reputation as effective, ruthless leaders who doesn't take prisoners and get the job done. The army did not look much better, but it was slightly better. It managed to get Grozny and hold it. And that was the major achievement in Grozny, the capital of uh, Chechnya. But the methods, there was no military finesse there. There was no great maneuvers and there was not amazing performance. It was simply grinding, grinding uh, the, the rebels. And of course, those who paid most were the civilians caught uh, in, in between. So it became a sort of a method. And there's a warning also to others later on in Georgia and in Ukraine, don't mess with us. Don't mess up with us. Not because we are such amazing special forces, that we are so great in uh, combined operations, so on and so forth, just because we can do to you what we've done to the Chechens. We, when we get down to business, we don't discriminate, we don't take prisoners. This is the message. It's combination of psychological terror, but also the reality that the Russian army comes back again and again and again. Also, almost like a tidal waves. What we, Ukraine is simply a different story, a little bit because it is so big, because the Ukrainian army between 2015 and 2022 apparently did a very impressive job in training and re-equipment, and it fights in a way that shocked not only the Russians, but also surprised us, to be frank. You make it sound then as if war crimes aren't a strategy. It's part of the strategy of the Russian way of war. Do you think that's accurate? I won't go that far uh, to say that uh, um, this is the, the, the primary goal or this is a part of the uh, manual, part of the kit. But uh, I would uh, say that uh, psychological terror, certainly. It is a part of it. The plan was quite simple, and we know that this was indeed the plan. They thought that it would be a blitzkrieg, a sort of shock and awe, that Kiev will fall within more or less a week. We know that because we, not we, our the Ukrainians found on the bodies of fallen Russian soldiers maps of Kiev with 
government uh, buildings marked and targeted. So the goal was to capture Kiev, no matter what, how they uh, repositioned themselves, that they had plan B, plan C, and plan Y. The goal was to capture Kiev, which is the core of the country. If you capture Kiev, basically Ukraine is fallen. So that was the goal, to do it in a very quick, efficient manner, which they did in Crimea. And I think that was the big miscalculation that uh, it will be Crimea second round, round two, of, uh, and this did not happen. So war crimes very often, as I said earlier, uh, start when you are frustrated, when you have high casualty, uh, number of casualties, when you will find yourself under-equipped and sometimes also uh, underserved, uh, that um, your logistics falling apart. So that is one. But at the same time, I I would uh, I agree with you that the timing, that the immediacy of the war crimes raise a red flag, that they immediately started shooting and killing and raping Ukrainian citizens. This is something that uh, it's we're only now beginning to investigate, but it looks very bad. Certainly, this is part of their psychological warfare against the um, uh, Ukrainians. And we mentioned several times Chechnya. The mentioning constantly of, we are bringing the Chechens. And by the way, there are Chechens now fighting in uh, Ukraine. And the Ukrainian reports do talk about uh, Chechen uh, uh, fighters as perpetrators of some of the worst uh, war crimes. It is part of the psychological terror against the civilian population in Ukraine. The Chechens are coming. Something very similar in Russian history to the Cossacks. The Cossacks are coming. Run away. Run to the shelters. The Cossacks are coming because these are the guys who do not discriminate in killing. These are the frightening guys. And more or less, this is the message there. Are they that effective in terms of uh, fighters? I am a little bit uh, skeptic, but they certainly sent uh, shivers uh, in the spines of population. Another thing that's baffling me about all of this that feels new, and I'm probably wrong about that, you can tell me, is how it's being handled in the press in the aftermath. And I'm speaking specifically what we know about what's happening in Russia, you know, the, the scenes are pretty stark that we've seen. Like it's, it, there was, doesn't seem like there was much of an attempt to hide this stuff at all. And yet what we hear from the Russians is that, that it, that it's fake, that it's staged, et cetera, et cetera. And various different variations of that. Like, how do you square it being a psychological method, you know, this in war and also, denying it at the same time on the home front. The one thing that brings this all together, the um, Russian uh, message to the Ukrainians and to the West and to their own population is fake. For anyone who has been following uh, Russian uh, media over the, the last, I would say, 15 years or so, it would make a George Orwell look like a naive choir boy uh, to see that he's 1984 is simply implemented by the letter uh, in Russian media. 
Russian me media uh, basically sticks to the, the points of this is special operation, liberation of uh, Ukraine from the neo-Nazis or the Nazis uh, and the criminals who took over uh, Ukraine and tried to separate it from uh, Russia. And this is a very powerful narrative. It is a very powerful narrative that does resonate with large part of the population for two main reasons. One, most of the Russian population to date gets its information from TV, not from the internet. Uh, it, there is some generational uh, aspect uh, to it uh, because this is an older generation, not uh, the young techies, professionals who live uh, in the computers with the VPNs, uh, etc. But watch the um, state media, and the state media is simply happy-go-lucky, special operation, Ukrainians are welcoming us, etc., there's been slight change um, in the, the last few days, admitting for more casualties. Uh, the um, spokesperson uh, of the, um, the Kremlin, uh, Dmitry Peskov, who is simply, when you listen to him, there's nothing to react uh, to it. It's simply a different world and in different language. He admitted, uh, I think, uh, two days ago in an interview to uh, Sky News in Great Britain um, that we suffer heavy casualties and it is a tragedy for us. Um, second uh, feature about the um, mass media is the elimination of all independent uh, media sources. And this the crackdown that started several years ago but uh, was completed over the last uh, month of closing down, shutting down the only independent uh, TV channel, Dozh, uh, Rain, and the um, liberal um, media outlets uh, um, like uh, newspapers, uh, all the um, news uh, magazines, and radio uh, talk shows and uh, like Echo um, Moskvi shut down completely. So those who get the different, the alternative story, that's what we read and what we watch, whether it's BBC, CNN, etc., there are quite a number of Russians who do get it. They manage to install, the, to download the VPNs, and the, the, there are ways the, to break through the so-called firewall that the, the Kremlin uh, imposed. But the problem is that these are mostly young people with already liberal uh, or pro-Western convictions, mainly in the cities. And they are in small numbers. They are not the majority. Make no mistake that this is not the majority of the population. There is a great mistrust in the uh, government news. Russians don't trust uh, the government. There are many uh, occasions uh, for this. Um, but on this one, it seems that maybe there is not such a major enthusiasm for this war. But we still don't see the cracks. We don't see a major cracks that we say, aha, we managed to break this wall of lies. It is not there yet. I'm slightly more optimistic than most on this one, because if the West will continue to hold its ranks together and stick with the sanctions, and the Ukrainians will continue to fight the way they've been fighting so far with the constant supply of weapons uh, for us and the 
the toll on Russia is growing. Now, people tell us uh, all the time that this is a regime that doesn't care about the suffering of the population. That is true. But it goes beyond just the suffering of ordinary men and women. It goes basically to shattering the Russian economy and the entire governmental structure. Uh, there, this is this elite that is not just Putin and his family and Putin and forty people. It's the entire system that is built on it is beginning to suffer. The point is to keep to stick to it, not to crack, not to allow the Germans to get cold in the winter, and the, and the Germans and the Italians and the, all other European countries who are dependent on Russian uh, gas and oil to keep it together. And I think. We will have to see if they, it works, uh, the sanctions and the Ukrainian fighting successfully. And I am slightly optimistic about that. But again, things change uh, drastically every day. We still don't know what is the next step of the Russian military. We don't see any changes now, any cracks inside the Kremlin. But we will have to see. Wait and see. 
appointed by the former president, Dmitry Medvedev, who is considered to be slightly more liberal than uh, open-minded than uh, Putin. That was under him. Nothing much came out of all these uh, commissions, etc. But there are things that they are simply um, not given an inch. The issue of the famine, the great famine uh, of the early 1930s, it cannot be called genocide, as the Ukrainians uh, call it, the Holodomor. Uh, certainly no ethnic aspect uh, to it, that it was anti-Ukrainian or anti-Kazakh, by the way. The Kazakhs, uh, it's another uh, sleeper in the story of uh, Ukraine. We can get to it in a second. But uh, never mentioned the word genocide. This is something that sent uh, the Russian berserk in their reaction to history. And, of course, there's uh, the second element in the Russian rewriting of history is the what about. So whenever there is the, the stuff, yes, we did some, maybe there were some mistakes, there were some bad things, etc. But who are you to lecture us? Who dropped the only nuclear bomb in history? You Americans, not not us. And atrocities in Afghanistan. What about Vietnam? So the what about aboutism is a major, it's, it's a mantra in Russian discussions of uh, history or the official uh, stuff. I don't want to denigrate the work of some very good Russian historians. There are many great Russian historians who do decent work and do not toe the line etc. But the issue, of course, is what kids are being taught in schools, what kids get on TV, etc. And this is an increasingly nationalist line that tends to smooth over the uh, words of uh, the Soviet uh, regime. We just teased something that I know absolutely nothing about. How does Kazakhstan fit into all of this? Kazakhstan and basically every other country that was a former Soviet Republic is shaking in its boots now, right now. For the very simple reason, there is a significant uh, Russian minority inside Kazakhstan, in northern Kazakhstan, and the message, the tacit message from this war to all of them, you may be next. Don't challenge us too much. You do not support the, the Ukrainians. Not openly, not tacitly, no nothing. Because just like the, the allegation that, that uh, there is a Russian minority in Ukraine, and it doesn't matter, by the way, if this Russian minority is actually very Ukrainian patriotic. They tend to speak Rus- uh, Russian uh, at home. They are uh, uh, culturally Russified, but they don't see themselves as uh, Russian citizens. They don't want to be part of Russia. But uh, in Kazakhstan, we hear more and more Moldova nowadays. And we have already heard about Georgia. And Georgia, in this case, is very interesting. There is total resentment uh, towards Russia in Georgia. The popular resentments because of uh, slicing two provinces uh, in 2008. Again, with the central protecting ethnic Russians from uh, genocide, etc., which was, of course, bogus, etc. But the Georgian government does not uh, condemn anything. They are quite uh, scared and they have all the reasons to be weary of this. See Armenia. 
which always have had a, a, traditionally a very good relations with Russia. And you see the neighborhood, the Armenia, small country, that the neighbors are Turkey, Iran, uh, and Russia. I mean, it's not Liechtenstein and Luxembourg uh, surrounding it. And they are very careful. They are very careful about it because this uh, the, the Russian card, we, can, we will always protect Russian minorities or diaspora minorities. Russia, in this case, is acting like a diaspora empire. We have diasporas that are under constant threat of genocide. They love to use the word genocide, not the way we use it, but the way that used. And very often, it's actually, it's always fake. There is no uh, threat to Russian minorities. But in Kazakhstan, which is a very important country, it's very big. And of course, the energy there. So they know what they should not do, the Kazakhs. Uh, so I would simply advise the, our listeners to follow from time, who follow this issue, pay attention from time to time to what you don't hear from Moldova, Kazakhstan, Georgia, and other countries. All those who are, do not enjoy the protection, the umbrella of NATO. Because the same story we could have said about uh, the Baltic uh, states, the three tiny states uh, in Northern Europe, where it used to be uh, Soviet republics, but they are now inside NATO and they can sleep uh, somewhat uh, more confidently and quietly at night. There is this conflation between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, especially when we look at their atrocities. Why do you think there is this need almost, it feels like, to compare, compare feels like the wrong word, conflate feels like the right word. Like, why do you think we do this? Between the Soviets and the Nazis? The, the Nazis. Russians? The Nazis. Soviets and the Nazis, specifically. Well, there, certainly there, there, there have been profound similarities uh, coming from the philosophical foundations of these uh, two regimes, the belief that you can mold societies, uh, which means human beings like Plato from the individual to the collective based on your utopian goals, whether it is classless society uh, from the Soviet side or uh, racially based society from the Nazi point of view, but the, and the fact that uh, violence is a legitimate tool violence is constructive for these two regimes. It is not vengeful only. It is not just in, uh, in terms of policing and control. It's also restructuring society. So when they were talking both about violence, they were celebrating violence. They were not hiding it. So that is uh, one thing that certainly brought them together. They were mortal enemies, and they talked uh, constantly about their um, uh, conflict, but there was a point, which I pointed to it in the earlier writings, where the Soviets came very close to the Nazis. They claim, came very close to the Nazis in the mid of the Second World War and its aftermath, when they started targeting entire collectives, entire populations in total, undifferentiated, regardless of their service to the Soviet state. And they targeted them for indefinite eternal punishment, which almost made them 
racial entities. And the Chechens, by the way, were part of it. Ukrainian nationalists were part of it. They were all deported en masse in total. And in the late 1940s and early 1950s, their punishments, their penalties was converted from term sentences into eternal exile. That was very, very close to racial understanding of your enemy. They stepped back. They stepped back and they are, immediately after Stalin, there was a major change in these policies, rehabilitation, mass rehabilitation of nationalities and the, the so-called punished people of the Second World War. So they stepped uh, back from the brink, from the oblivion. Second, and this is a major debate nowadays uh, among historians, maybe it's not that important, I do not believe that the Soviets were genocidal. They always kept certain differentiation with the, uh, their enemies, those who could be rehabilitated, those who were on our side, etc. The Nazis were genocidal a priori. There was no good Jew, semi-good Jew, bad Jew. It was all Jews that they could lay their hands on. Now, of course, there were many who fell in between the cracks. Some May, uh, leading Nazis protected individual Jews that they knew. We know about the German generals and marshals who were of Jewish descent and they were protected by, for instance, Hermann Goering for his own uh, agenda, personal agenda. But in general, there was no differentiation in the Soviet Union, despite their horrendous atrocity. And it was a, a regime that committed crimes against humanity on right and left. And the recklessness, and with the Ukrainian um, uh, famine, or, uh, and in Kazakhstan, which suffered, by the way, in terms of share of population, Kazakhstan suffered more than any other Soviet republic in terms of the share of uh, victims of the, in the population. Nevertheless, there were Ukrainians who were on the Soviet side, Ukrainians in the cities, who suffered less. It was more or less on political class-based. And that is the difference. Now, it did not help much about uh, three and a half million Ukrainians who starved to death in this criminal episode in the early 1930s. It did not help anything for the Kazakhs who died, etc. So this is... but. Uh, you might say that this is more semantic differences, etc., but I would say it is important in the understanding of a regime, whether it can integrate its uh, and uh, part of its enemies, rehabilitate some, and those who give up uh, completely on them a priori. This is my understanding, and I am very well aware that there is a debate uh, raging among historians. Why it is, a, I would say, as a final word, why is it burning so much? For the Russians, nowadays, they were in the Russian Federation, the key legitimizing factor in history is the Second World War, which in Russia is still referred to as the Great Patriotic War. This is the victory over the Nazis. And there's no... Uh, coincidence there, that Putin is using constantly 
the terms denazification, referring to the Ukrainian government and as a Nazi uh, gang, etc. Of course, there's a little problem that uh, Zelensky is Jewish, that his family of his grandparents, a part of his grandparents' family died, were murdered in the Holocaust. And the other part fought in the ranks of the Red Army against the Nazis. So there is a little problem there. And the prime minister who was Jewish and all this. So of course, we should not take it seriously in terms of validity. But it does resonate very strongly, especially with certain generation in the Russian Federation, that we are fighting the demons of these Ukrainian fascists who collaborated with the Nazis, who exterminated our POWs and Jews and all the stuff, and everything is a fruit salad. It does resonate very, very powerfully in a country that its entire, the foundation of its legitimacy, now the historical foundation, is now centered over the great victory, its moment in the sun, of the, um, the, uh, the victory in um, the Second World War. And I would simply, I don't make any predictions. I'm an historian, so I'm very cautious. But I would simply advise us, Take a look of how May 9th, Victory Day, will look in uh, in Moscow. What kind of message will come? What speech Putin will deliver on this uh, day? And what whether there will be a parade and what kind of parade will be there in the Red Square uh, in front of the Kremlin on this occasion of the victory over the Nazis? That would be quite a, an intriguing exercise of how the war is being interpreted uh, in Russia. And in this war, of course, we don't know what next week will look like. So talking about uh, May 9th this year may look like talking about the next millennium. But let's watch indeed uh, how it will uh, work out. You have a, you're working on a book? Yeah, I'm editing and now the book on the KGB. The title is at home with the KGB, and then you a history of the organization. And it's indeed a history of the organization from Plato to NATO, which means from 1954 to uh, 91, with uh, an epilogue about the legacy of the KGB and its impact on the uh, security organs uh, nowadays. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll have, have you, you back. Oh, I'll be <laughs> we, happy we will definitely have you back for that. Amir Viner, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. As always, if you like the show, please leave us a rating, drop us a line. It helps other people find the show. And uh, go to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com. Sign up for nine bucks a month. Uh, It helps keep the show going. You get commercial-free versions of the mainline episodes, and you get bonus episodes every month. We will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 